Hello everyone, my name is Rebecca Gumberwitz, and today I will be speaking with Hope Leeson, a botanist at the Rhode Island Natural History Survey, as well as the coordinator for the Rhodey Native Initiative there. This is for NRS 401, a class taught by Laura Meyerson on restoration ecology at the University of Rhode Island. So thanks again, Hope Leeson, for meeting with us, and let's get started. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Rhodey Native Initiative and what you do with that project? Sure. Well, good morning. <laughs> it's a beautiful morning here at East Farm. The Rhodey Native Initiative is a program that is run through the Rhode Island Natural History Survey, and we started it um, in 2010. Um, we were working on a grant to uh, manage invasive species and train um, landscape contractors specifically to work with landowners um, to manage invasive species. And so the other side of that was once you've removed the invasives, do you need to plant and what are you going to plant? M um, many of the areas, because we were working um, on state land, uh, land trust property, um, natural habitats. Um, so one of the big questions was where are we going to get this plant material? Um, and most of the plant material that you can purchase is produced for not for necessarily for restoration purposes but for um, horticultural purposes and um, in fact many of the shrubs and are cloned um, from a single plant for a specific attribute that we find attractive. It's n not really suitable for habitat restoration. Um, there isn't a lot of genetic diversity within any population that you could put out onto the landscape because it's all cloned from one specific, one plant. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also often coming from other parts of the country, so from the Midwest or from the North, um, northwest or mid-Atlantic states are the very closest areas where we can get our plant material. We wanted to try to begin a program in Rhode Island where plant material could be produced locally from local sources of plant material, so local ecotypes, but also being produced with the most genetic diversity that we could make, that we could reproduce. Um, from the populations that we have. Right. Did you have any specific training for that prior to starting the initiative? Or what was your education and earlier stages like leading up to where you are now? Um, I did not have any specific training in that other than being a botanist and knowing where the plants were. And that was a big thing to to realize that we, I mean, we realized we really had no knowledge of the horticulture industry. Um, and so we spent a long time working with um, Shannon Brawley at the Rhode Island uh, Nursery and Landscape Association. She introduced us to a number of growers throughout the state and we went and talked with them and about how they grow things and reproduce plant material and what their market is and you know so just trying to learn as much as we could about the industry and then um, going around throughout New England to, to talk to people that did produce restoration material and see how they did that. Um, and there are a number of other small organizations that 
produce native plant material. Uh, there's a group in Long Island, um, and then the New England Wildflower Society has Nasami Farm, which um, were big helps, really, both organizations, the Long Island Native Plant Initiative and the Nasami Farm, really served as mentors for me um, in, this, in this process. So my own background is not traditional either. <laughs> Seems to be what I do in life. Um, my major was studio art, and I always was trying to um, combine science and art. Um, that's sort of been a theme for me. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I mean, I took um, as many ecology-related classes as I, as I could, and, and science and uh, art-related classes, obviously, also, and, and was always, through my art, trying to understand the natural world, and then always um, trying to learn more about it through the science classes. Um, and then in employment after, after college, I worked for uh, the Department of Environmental Management in Rhode Island, um, and worked in the freshwater wetland section and, um, and actually got sort of funneled into um, restoration responsibilities. Um, and so I was originally writing consent decrees, so writing um, agreements between a landowner who had violated the Freshwater Wetlands Act um, to get them to restore the property um, and then going out and inspecting to see that what they had done was what we had asked them to do. And then, you know, started working in the wetlands field, uh, flagging wetlands and working more on restorations um, or landscaping with native plants because that was even in the early 1990s, that was beginning to become something that people wanted to have happen, or at least in the circle that I was working in anyway they did. And um, so it just sort of grew from that, and, and um, here I am. <laughs> here you are. Um, do you have a favorite project that you've done since you've started? Well, the, the, um, the habitat restorations that we've done through the Natural History Survey have been fairly limited, but we have had um, a few projects as a result of this initiative because a lot of what we grow goes into habitat restoration. So... We've worked on the last four years. I've been working out at Napa Tree Point in Watch Hill, um, which is a sand dune, and that's been really interesting um, because it's an environment that is changing every year. It's different. The sea level is is in is continually rising. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> but the position of the you know the sand is such a, a fluctuating system that it, it all is it's in it changes and is is always presents new and interesting things to ponder um but we've what we've been trying to do out there is there were a number of of um crossings napa tree point is a spit that goes out between little narragansett bay and the long island and block island sound so there were literally like a hundred crossings um and in Hurricane Sandy, all of those crossings uh, served as conduits for stormwater. Um, and so what the Napa Tree Point Conservation Association wanted to do was 
close off as many as they could and really limit the number of crossings um, to just try to prevent the whole spit from being completely bisected and um, by the next big hurricane. So um, we've been working with them to do that, and we wanted to not just plant um, beach grass and in the trails, but also to introduce um, additional shrub species in the back dune area to try to increase the biodiversity out there of species, and then also um, plant um, seaside goldenrod, which is a very common species out there um, in the trails as well. So we've been growing a number of different shrubs um, from winged sumac and Virginia rose and bayberry, um, but we also tried some other things that you would find in larger back dune systems, um, such as um, even black gum, which is a tree, um, but survives um, uh, salt uh, water spray, as well as shad and melanchier and some winterberry because there's some wet areas, so ilex reticulata, and uh, chokeberry, which is another common back dune species, aronia. Um, but what we have found is that those species really haven't done well uh, for a number of different reasons. And the primary reason being the browse by deer and um, rabbits and meadow vole and beach plum. We also put beach plum out there. So that's been a really interesting um, component of learning about habitat restoration is how to incorporate the inevitable <laughs> browse by vegetarian species, whatever they are. You know, it, it could be geese on a salt marsh or, or meadow voles in a sand dune or deer in a forest. And, and um, when I look in the literature, I don't find any discussion of how people have dealt with that you know, what their strategies have been. So in all of our projects, we've had to come up with, with different strategies, and, and fencing is, is <laughs> seems to be the most effective, or, or tree tubes or something to protect them, but um, until they get above the height of, of what deer can easily chew down to the ground, they're certainly going to continue to eat, but they'll hopefully just eat the side branches and not be so destructive to them. Um, but deer, I mean, another project that we're, we've been working on for the last two years is at the Norman Bird Sanctuary in Middletown, and that is a forested environment, and the deer population there is is staggering, and it's been really interesting to try to think of how we can how we can manage that, and, they, and to see that, that they are really driving the succession of that forest um, and selecting which plants succeed and which plants don't. Um, so it, it's that's been very interesting. I agree. Um, through this class we've been seeing in restoration ecology there's with the changing climate and environments and obviously mother nature as a whole presents challenges that make our efforts a little bit more difficult but I wanted to go back to what you said about sea level rise and um, climate change and ask if you had any comments about how ecological restoration might promote ecosystem resilience in the face of climate change and how we might be better able to combat that? Yeah, well, actually it's interesting that you ask that because the project at the Norman Bird Sanctuary was funded by the Wildlife Conservation 
fund, their climate adaptation fund specifically. And the mandate was to try to think into the future to make a habitat um, resilient to climate change. Um, and I think, you know, we really don't know what's coming. Biological diversity is just key because the more individuals that you have of different genetic makeup and the more different species that are on the landscape um, that have different adaptations, the greater chances there are of something surviving. Um, I mean, plants are incredibly adaptable even within their own lifetime, and I have faith that plants will evolve and, and will continue to to populate the planet and pull carbon out of the atmosphere, which is what they've been doing for <laughs> a long time. Yes. We just let them do it. But I think biodiversity is key. And um, the, one of the things that I've been trying to incorporate specifically at Napa Tree Point, but also at the Norman Bird Sanctuary, is utilizing plants that respond well to disturbance. So through their own biology, they are disturbance adapted. So like winged sumac is a really good example because it um, puts out a lot of underground runners, underground stems, rhizomes, and then above ground stems for leafing out and fruiting. But so in a storm event, if it gets covered with sand, um, it can just keep growing underground. And we saw that also with bayberry after the sandy hurricane. The napa tree point was completely flattened the uh, western end of it was and sand was just dumped on top of all of the bayberry all of the beach grass and all of the red cedars that were out there so it really looked like a desert and within one growing season beach grass which that's what it does and that's what its name implies amophila is sand loving just grows up and and you know any individual beach grass plant will be you know 10 feet down into the ground where the sand is just built up over time around it. But um, the bayberry did the same, just started growing right up, um, has a, an ability to layer, so a branch that's in contact with moist soil can root and then grow an above-ground stem. Um, the cedars just sort of stayed tipped, but the sand eventually blew off of them, and, you know, they probably... They're half their size now in many cases um, because most of what they have is under under the sand. <laughs> so trying to use those kinds of species, particularly in, in places where there is disturbance either from increased erosion from uh, runoff or um, storm surge, um, and trying to plant at the Norman Bird Sanctuary, we were seeing a lot of erosion, a lot of the roots um, of the trees that were around this just a seasonal stream flow, mm -hmm. um, were exposed. So we planted swamp rose in the stream to try to slow the flow. So that's another colonial species. It will, it will populate a wide area. But so trying to think in terms of what the plants can offer, I think, is an important component. And then also trying to incorporate as much biological diversity and genetic diversity as possible into the system. Right. Are there any gaps that you feel that the field of restoration ecology 
needs to fill. I know we talked about browsing with the deer and finding helpful ways to combat that, but is there anything else in general that you would like to see in the future for the field of restoration? Or I think more uh, facility to grow local ecotypes of native plants and to grow them from seed. Seed production is something that, at least in New England, in, or Rhode Island, I should say, has become a thing of the past. People, growers, primarily buy in clones or, or what they call liners, so little plants, and then pot them up and, and make them bigger. But seed is, is the key to that genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. And if we can get more support and more programs or more growers interested or and more restoration ecologists to recognize that that is really an important component of what they're doing, then I think it would be a better better system. So now we've come to my last question. I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me about this. And obviously it's really important work and it's amazing that you do the things that you do. And I wanted to know if you had any advice for students or graduates hoping to work in this field or just any lasting advice that you'd like to say. Well, you know, it's really life. It applies to every every part of life, really, I think being able to accept that you will learn as you go, you know, and not everybody knows everything. In fact, nobody knows anything, really. (laughs) Um, You know, I think as people, we need to be resilient in that sense, because there's so much unknown, and I think we have to always be looking for opportunities to change and adjust what we're doing, because the land or the plants or the the water or whatever we're working with is 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 telling us something if we just pay attention so observing is is really important for people to develop i agree with that i think that's very important for people today to realize that our environment is changing and that it's important to pay attention to what it's doing and what we're doing that may be causing it or to make sure that we're being responsible in our actions, too. So. Yeah. yeah, and that it's all a system. I mean, I think a lot of science has become very compartmentalized, but yet it's all interconnected in one, you know, it's the, the ripple in the pond, you know. One stone causes a lot of different changes, and so we have to be open to seeing what those all are. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I've learned a lot, <laughs> and I think this was a really helpful discussion, and... Um, I really appreciated it, so thank you again. Well, thank you. It's been nice to talk about it as well.